Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to History Hack. You've got Beth here, joined by, of course, the most wonderful person in the world, Charlie. Charlie, how are you doing today? Well, I don't know how I can live up to that, Beth. That's quite an intro. Thank you. I'm good. How are you? I'm not too bad at all. I'm looking forward to this one. Can you uh, just let us know who we've got today? Well, I'm very excited because not only are we in my wheelhouse of the 17th century, we're going to be talking about my favourite guy in it. We're joined today by Dr. Anna Kay, who's a historian and a curator and director of the Landmark Trust, a charity that rescues and restores historic buildings and lets them out for holidays. I get a feeling that some of us are going to want to book some of these. She's the author of The Restless Republic, Britain Without a Crown, the Last Royal Rebel, The Life and Death of James, Duke of Monmouth. And she's here today to talk about a favourite book of ours here at History Hack, The Magnificent Monarch, Charles II and the Ceremonies of Power. Hello, Anna. Hiya. Thank you so much for joining us from your, I must say, absolutely gorgeous looking library there. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm encased in books. Uh, having benefited a lot from the sad business of lots of uh, libraries selling off their books for 49p and um, uh, having a bit of space here. So, yeah, I'm in a kind of library womb, book womb. (laughs) Oh, it's the best place to be. It looks Mm. gorgeous. So your book that we're talking about today, The Magnificent Monarch, examines the life of Charles II through the ceremonies that he took part in. And This seems like a really good way for us to structure what could be a very long and rambling conversation between, I'm guessing, two two fans of Charles II. So let's start at the beginning. What do we know about Charles's christening? Ah, well, so uh, a lot. I mean, one of the things that's that's great about taking a subject which might seem a bit um, a bit arcane, like ceremonial, is that it's one of those things that people 
at the time, in this case, in the 17th century, were incredibly interested in and recorded in immense detail because every single thing that happened, who stood where, who wore what, how many steps everybody took, really, really counted. Um, and so the, the, the documentation about um, uh, events, uh, ceremonial events in sovereigns' lives, in this case, Charles II's, is amazing and very little used by historians on the whole because it's tended to be less of an area of study by um, people in the 20th, 20th to 21st centuries, kind of, you know, who tended to look more at, you know, parliament and um, institutions and so on. So, um, sorry, which is rather a long way of saying we know lots <laughs> about um, Charles II's um, christening. And it was a really, really big deal because it was the first time that a Prince of Wales had been christened in England since um, Henry VIII's reign, since um, Edward VI's Wow. Uh, christening because of obviously with female sovereigns in the form of Elizabeth I and Mary Tudor um, and the fact that when James I and VI came to the throne he's, his children were already they'd already been christened so um, we have a lot of detail about it it took place at St James's Palace and um, we we can see it from all angles really and it is a kind of amazing occasion because the juxtaposition of all this pomp and ceremony, you know, the thousands of people, the, the, the godparents who were sovereigns of Europe and the, you know, the, the, the kind of glory of the occasion with this tiny, tiny little few <laughs> weeks old baby in the middle of it and, and everything, as it were, focused on him. It's a very, very sort of powerful image to me about um, what ceremony was all about. Oh, my goodness. So who was there? Well, so essentially there was a, the guest list was incredibly long. Um, I mean, running to into the thousands. I mean, the event actually took place in St. James's Palace Chapel, which still survives, which you can see um, uh, if you go to the palace on the occasional, uh, occasional moments when you can get in there. Um, and it's not a very big room. I mean, it's not, not a lot bigger than a conventional parish church. So it's clear that the people who, who were there um, you know, only some of them would actually have been in in the in the room, and lots of them must have been lining the route. Because, as well as you know, all the great figures of the aristocracy, the figures of the court, um, members of the um, senior figures in the church, there was also Lord Mayor of London, and you know, dignitaries of the city, and so on. Um, interestingly, though, two people, two people who weren't there, and that was his parents. So um, Henrietta Maria, who had just given birth was um you know being kept firmly horizontal and mm. tended to because of course the tremendous risk of childbirth to women of all status mm. uh, at this time were, was such that her being kind of up and about was wasn't going to be risked and there was a long standing practice that the the um the the king or the sovereign the, the, the you know the father in this case of the the christian child didn't attend so although Actually, he did watch from the uh, royal closet, which is a sort of elevated um, chamber that above the um, the main body of the church. He wasn't a participant in the ceremony because the crucial thing about any ceremony is what's the thing you're supposed to be looking at? You know, who are you supposed to be looking at? In this case, you're supposed to be looking at the baby. <laughs> There's not, you know, there shouldn't be ambiguity about where the focus of the ceremony ceremony is, and so. Charles I was kind of off stage, but um, but a spectator. So obviously we have the infant and young child Charles. Obviously he is the Prince of Wales. So I imagine there's all sorts of ceremonies and the usual pomp that comes with being the heir to the throne. Um, what kind of events would he have taken part in as he was growing up? Because obviously his childhood uh, is before the English Civil War, isn't it? So in that time, that period where he was allowed to be the prince, what kind of things would he have been getting up to? 
So there's a very there's a very kind of carefully calibrated set of sort of moments, if you like, in the life of uh, the Prince of Wales, or, where they were kind of getting closer to um, uh, 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 kind of assuming the full the full kind of responsibilities or the full um, sort of uh, attributes of the role. Um, and eight years old was a very important one, which is usually where um, the, the the household that's around. Um, a, a, a royal child will change from being essentially women and those in, kind of involved in, you know, rocking the cradle. There's actually a job called a rocker, which is quite a nice, <laughs> also quite a nice position when your job is to nudge the royal cradle back and forth to one which is then about um, men being introduced around you to be to be tutoring you in the arts of princely arts and with archery and um, sword play and dancing and all this kind of stuff. So eight years old is an important one. That's also crucially where you and in the case of Charles the second um can be admitted to the order of the garter which is a really really big part of the kind of if all of this is about about making it feel absolutely inevitable that this person is destined to be the next king because the thing about ceremonies is in a sense we, we it you know it can feel like a totally sort of fluffy kind of a subject because you know who cares um because it's all fluff but actually of course it isn't fluff that's the point people didn't care about it so much at the time without you know without having good reason people weren't weren't stupid it was because it was all to do with building up a kind of web of loyalty to this small vulnerable creature who could be kidnapped or deposed or whatever and a sense that they you know that god's own um mandate was somehow in their very veins so all of this thing all these things like the business of um you know being part of the order of the garter and so on were all part of a kind of build-up which of course had you know, the reason that I wrote a book about the ceremonies of Charles II's court. I wouldn't have written a book about the ceremonies of Elizabeth I's court. Interesting subject though that is, mm-hmm. because the point, of course, about Charles II is that he then goes into exile. His father is executed, and so on. So you you have the ability to look at this, the language of this stuff, of this sort of ceremonial, as I say, kind of language in which power is 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 described, and see what happens to it when suddenly. You know, you take away all of the th- the kind of actual substance of power in terms of the, the you know him not actually being um, being in charge of things as as would come later. So, so yeah, so it's so for me the the interest of looking at ceremonies in the context of Charles II is it's almost like a scientific experiment where you have a kind of control and you take away various elements and you say what does it, what happens if you don't actually have power or you don't actually have a kingdom? You know, does this stuff matter? Is it fluff or is it something of consequence? So um, anyway, all of which is to say that, uh, as you say, there is a period until he, you know, I mean, really, when he's he's uh, sort of 12 is when the civil war breaks out. So he, he there are he does have various sort of ceremonial moments um, in, in his childhood. But of course, it's all cut short by war. And does he get a chance to do any of that as he gets older, as the civil war is raging? Is there any chance for him to still be the prince or is wartime take does wartime take over? Well, wartime does take over, um, but one of the things that's very interesting, I know I find very interesting about working on this, is the extent to which it, it mattered. You know, very interesting thinking about it at the moment, you know, in a, in a world where we sit here where there is a, a war raging in Ukraine and we're seeing what, you know, what, what does that do to, you know, what trouble is taken to do normal things and why does that matter? You know, there was stuff in the paper yesterday about them planting the herbaceous borders in Kiev, and you'd think, why are they doing that? But of course, it matters to do it because it's about saying we're still in charge. This is still our place, you know. 
it's it, you know it's not it, this isn't fluff this is about saying you know the show is going on so similarly with um Charles II as he's Prince of Wales still um in exile you know there's I'm not in exile during the civil war there is although the royal family have lost control of the palaces they they they're forced out of London and or they abandon London in 1642 living in Oxford and then kind of on the move um you know, real trouble is taken to try and make sure that the members of the royal family are still addressed in the right way, that the food is served to them in the right, um, with the right formalities and on bended knee. And there's a whole kind of rigmarole about how food gets served in order to, you know, it's, in my argument really is this stuff becomes much more important when you don't actually have control because it's, it, it, it comes to be what distinguishes you from a another person who you might think might, might, might you might rather prefer to have as king and when that's being you know challenged so yeah so things like uh, um the way dining in state which is an important um sort of bit of the ceremonial um kind of recipe book is uh, the great trouble is taken to do that even when um uh, charles is prince of wales and indeed charles is the first himself his father are you know kind of on the run or staying in a very sort of you know living quite a hand-to-mouth existence um certainly not in a royal palace and then he goes on his travels 11 years of exile bumming around the continent from place to place what shape does the court in exile take and in, in terms of ceremonies is is charles still a monarch or is he more of a ceremonial monarch, like a just on paper, he's the king? Well, so this is the this is the great rub because, of course, you know, in well, particularly from sixteen forty nine, he goes into he goes he leaves the, the leaves England in the middle of the sixteen forties, but then he's in uh, from sixteen forty nine with the execution of Charles the first. He is, you know, if you're if you're a royalist, you know, he's Charles the second. He is the king. If you're um, a Republican or you're, you know, part of the the, the 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 kind of Commonwealth regime in England, he is Charles Stuart, you know, Mr. Stuart, uh, you know, and other person. So that's where what how you behave and what you do really, really matters. Uh, now, for the first few years of the um, of the interregnum, uh, uh, Charles, I'm going to call him Charles II, although, although in a kind of a way I don't really approve of it because I think it's, you know, that's assuming what we know later, which is he gets restored. <laughs> I mean, if he hadn't been, you know, you 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 probably wouldn't be calling him that. But anyway, for ease, ease I will. So for the first few years, he's living in in, in Paris. Um, his mother, Henrietta Maria, was the daughter was the daughter of France. Her father had been Henry the Fourth of France, so she's put up and given apartments at the Louvre and at um, uh, Saint Germain en Laye. So he he gets to live in a palace. But he doesn't live in a palace in his own right. He lives there because he's living in his mother's rooms. And um, there's a great big question mark over whether people are recognising him as a king or not. Now, the French, who are very keen uh, to not to kind of fall out with the new Republican regime in England, because they can see all sorts of advantages with being um, on good terms with um, the Republican regime, is really helped here. Because although Charles, um, although the monarchy is abolished in England in the early months of 1649, definitively, it's not what happens in Scotland. In Scotland, um, the, the, the sort of powers that be are furious about the execution of Charles I. Not that they thought he was much of a good king, but he was their king and they hadn't been asked about whether he could be executed. So um, Charles II is, de- is declared king in Scotland. 
So this really helps everybody because it means you can call him your majesty and, you know, um, his, you know, the, the king and so on, w- while drawing a bit of a veil over where you're acknowledging that he's king of. Mm-hmm. So um, for some people, it is clearly the case that he, you know, there's no question, of course, he's king of, you know, the whole of um, um, Great Britain and Ireland. And, you know, it's just a matter of time before these usurpers are booted out. Um, but it's also quite clear that this is a, a kind of a fiction, really, because He's not in any way in charge. He has no army. He has no political infrastructure. He doesn't have a kind of, you know, he's not like, um, you know, sort of some 20th century parallels where you've got a sort of full government in exile. He's not in charge of anything. Um, so it is a, it is a, um, there's a kind of emperor's new clothes quality to it. And this is where it matters so much that everything that's done around him um, expresses his sovereignty because it's the only thing he's left with in the absence of an exchequer or a, any money to pay anybody with or anything. Um, so all the business about him being the way he um, receives communion at church, about the way, uh, about the fact that he um, touches for the king's evil, he has a sort of ceremonial um, uh, curing of the sick um, and all sorts of other stuff really, really matters because it's, it's, it's kind of all he's got left. And it is, of course, very difficult because he doesn't have any money. So although he's got quite a lot of people around him, most of whom are royalists who know that they're not going to have any hope in uh, London under a Republican regime, that he's got, he hasn't got any means to give them any money. And it's at the end of a civil war where, you know, already the royal jewels and so on had been sold to raise money. So the coffers were bare to begin with. So he's got very little to go on other than goodwill, which, again, is what makes, to my mind, the business of carrying out all these ceremonies so important because it's like, oh, he must be a king. Look, <laughs> look at the way they're <laughs> serving his lunch or look at him handing out, you know, or get, get uh, um, knighting people, even though he didn't have any of the, the kind of pecuniary, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, resources at his fingertips. Um, it was all about maintaining the idea that he was a king and it was only a matter of time before he would be in charge once again and then able to make good on all the promises and pay all his debts. I love the the sort of fiction that's grown up around this time because the shorthand tends to be that he he was in France with his mother in a palace and people assumed that he was at Versailles, which of course wasn't built, but he that he was in this sort of splendour and having quite a nice time. But Henrietta Maria didn't have a lot of money from the from the French. They had to then kick him out, like you say, because you know, there's trade deals going on and this kind of thing. It must have been completely impossible to keep up that fiction of being a king when you're having to just go somewhere else. We, we don't want you here. We've just made a deal. You need to leave now. And that happens time and time again. Yeah, it does. And as you say, I mean, the first the first few years of the um, interregnum, he is at he, you know, he is he's got a you know royal bed to lie in and ceases. And he essentially, as you say, um, well, sort of ejects himself before he's ejected. And then he's kind of wandering around, you know, he's wandering around um, what, what's now Germany. He's staying in various, you know, um, uh, sort of hostelries. Mm. Um, and, you know, he's having to survive on his, his wits. Uh, and one of the things that's amazing, though, is that his account, the, the account books survive for payments for his little time. It's so fascinating because it allows you to see what they're actually spending money on and what he's actually up to. And I think it might well have really finished off a different sort of a person. I think if it had been his father, I think the, 
ignominy of being, you know, forced to stay in a room and in, in, in and so on would have been utterly crushing. But Charles II is a very unusual person or a very particular person. And you can see that during this time, uh, as well as sort of endless King of Spain for support and all that kind of stuff, he's also, you know, he buying a pet monkey and going swimming and um, spending money on a brilliant bed that you could take to pieces and put back together. And so, you you know, you get a sense that he, his his personality was such that, although I'm sure it was horrible, um, he didn't, he, 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 he took pleasure in, in, in simpler or a kind of things that were less about status than people um, or other people in, of his background might have done. And he was more, fl- more kind of adaptable, I think, more flexible to different environments. Things that, that as I say, would have had Charles II kind of shivering in horror and sort of, you know, um, running a mile from. So although the maintaining the idea that you're a king is just, was, was, was hard to do, um, he was, had a kind of personal resilience um, born of personality, um, which, which made it, made it you know, less grim for him than it might have done for, for someone else. And so from moving on from ceremony on a budget, as we'll call it, maybe ceremony, <laughs> ceremony by Aldi, um, <laughs> come forward back to the restoration period, which is probably one of the most magnificent periods of, of English history, you know, so yeah, ceremony at Aldi to then maybe ceremony at Marks and Spencer's or Waitrose. Um, what do we know about the King coming back to England and what image Charles is trying to present after this period of austerity, uh, without a monarchy, etc.? What image is he then trying to portray? Well, of course, the great art of the restoration which of course really wasn't Charles II's doing at all it was because of the failure of the of the different regimes that wasn't born of his brilliant maneuvering or um, anything like that uh, it was born of the political instability that had, had followed the abolition of the monarchy and the kind of failure to figure out in advance what it was that was going to be a better solution some historical lesson about everything um, but uh, but nonetheless um, when the restoration happened in 1660 the initial, the initial and overwhelming fiction of it all was that the Republic had never happened. You know, he'd been king since January 1649. This was, in fact, the whatever it was, 11th, 12th year of his reign, not the first. Um, and, that, um, and that his return was something entirely rather that he had chosen to come back rather than something that had been brought about by, you know, only by essentially General Monk. Um, and pulling off an extraordinary um, mm. s- series of events, which is sub- su- you know, subject for another occasion. But anyway, <laughs> so so um, so it was an interesting one because, of course, in reality, um, uh, all sorts of people and institutions, whether that was the City of London or whether it was um, you know um, uh, the, the judiciary or whoever it was, had to a greater or lesser extent been been participants in government in England for the last 10 years. So they were all in a bit of an awkward spot. So as to explain how calm it was that, you know, that they haven't um, nailed their colours to the royalist mast so comprehensively. So, so a couple of things happen. One is there's, there is, you know, a tremendous um, a, a sort of tr- tremendous effort put into saying this is, you know, this is a sort of seamless transition from Charles I to Charles II, draw a massive, massive veil over the fact that, you know, the last 10 years had happened. So, as I say, this, you know, coming back to this great business of counting the regnal years from 1649 and 
um, uh, and skating over what had happened before. Secondly, what happens is that everybody, as soon as it is clear that the restoration is going to happen, is in a massive competition to try to find a way of showing Charles II that, of course, we'd always been, we always wanted you to be king. And, you know, we, you know it might have looked like we didn't, but, you know, that it was, you know, this is what we've been longing for. Um, uh, to the extent that Charles II makes this wonderful comment as he's riding into London, as a big ceremonial entry into London in 1660, and he makes a comment to somebody else that um, a sort of wonderful kind of wry Charles II kind of remarks that, you know, it was, it was obviously entirely his own fault that he had been in exile so long because there wasn't a single person in England who hadn't longed for his return the entire time, which is a kind of expression of how much everybody was you know, t- spinning him that line. But the consequences of it were very uh, beneficial for him because, of course, one way you can show how, how loyal you are is to present gifts. And so he was absolutely um, kind of welted with, um, uh, with presents and gifts and some lovely things still in the Tower of London and the Jewel House, actually, something called the Plymouth Fountain, which was you know, a gift from the city of Plymouth showing their loyalty. Oh, that's my clock chiming. So, is that all right? Do you, do you want me to keep going? That's I don't fine. mind about the clock. No. Um, so... Um, so he's, which is pretty helpful because obviously there, he's got loads of debts he needs to pay, and the royal palaces are all in a state. The crown jewels were melted down, so or you know broken up, so those have all got to be remade. So money is very much required. Um, but what, of course, the ceremonial kind of calendar of the English uh, royal um, household allows for is lots and lots of ways in which you can reward people without actually having to give them any money. You can reward them by letting them carry the sword or stand next to you or hold <laughs> your shirt when you're getting dressed. All of these kind of things are little granular ways that you can um, bind people to you, express your gratitude and, 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 and a kind of um, enshrined sort of a, a bond of loyalty between you and somebody else. So, for example, the people who were responsible for the restoration, the actual players in the crucial events, the few months over the winter of 1659 to 1660, all get positions in the royal household. You know, the important ones like General Monk is, you know, given, you know, the top job and then the junior figures, but people who were, who were part of those crucial weeks taking messages and so on are given jobs as, you know, as um, a part of the, the, the um, king's grooms and you know, people participating at royal mills and so on. So this, this, the, the, the kind of the, the positions that you could fill in the sort of ceremonial um, theatre of ceremony were really, really helpful. It's what all this ceremony was about, was it allowed you to do that. And that was really, really welcome in 1660 because Charles II had a lot of people who'd waited a long time to um, get back into the thick of things. Amazing. Now, if, if Beth thinks the restoration is is Marks and Spencer's um, Waitrose level, I think we're we're going to Harrods now for the coronation. How did Charles top his coming in in magnificence with his coronation? Well, of course, the coronation was the great sort of apogee of the 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 um, well, both of the restoration and of his his sort of delayed accession. I mean, coronations always were. I mean, that wasn't particular to him. But of course, in the case of Charles II, you've got this whole other thing. It's not just um, the inauguration of an individual sovereign you're talking about. It is the reinstitution of monarchy itself. Um, and uh, the thing that's interesting about Charles II's coronation is, I mean, it was an incredibly lavish occasion on you know tremendous scale, tremendous budget. But um, what 
what might have happened in 1660 is there might have been a view that this is quite a good opportunity to make some changes to stuff mm-hmm. because, you know, actually this is a medieval ceremony that's based on, you know, a kind of ancient order books going way back and the first things that we don't really know what their role is in terms of the objects that you use and so on so you could have done a bit of a tidy up you might even have said actually we ought to recognize the sort of nature of royal power has changed since you know the age of William the Conqueror and there's some things that we could do to express that better and that is exactly what they do not do instead (laughs) the absolutely total kind of headline sort of strap line of all the people who work on the coronation and the kind of committee that meets in advance is we must do exactly what was done before. And it's part of this business of saying that the interregnum never happened, the Republic never happened. We've got to so exactly, um, you know, replicate what happened when Charles I was crowned and, and other sovereigns going back that, you know, it will somehow, it will somehow kind of brick up that, you know, that whole episode, which we are very unhappy about in, in English history. So, and of course, you know, Charles I's coronation had been within living memory for quite a few people. So, uh, and there were very good records. So Edward Walker, who was the sort of chief herald on the committee and the minutes of this committee still survive, amazingly, in the British Library, was was tasked with going off and finding all the old records and doing a list of, you know, how the event had to happen and what was needed. Because, as I said, the, 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 the regalia had been had been melted down. A lot of it had been coined um, for, um, you know, in, in, in coinage and circulation. Um, and so there was a kind of shopping list, <laughs> coming back to Beth's analogy, for the sort of Fortnum and Mason, um, uh, you know, end of things, which said, you know, one state crown, one coronation crown, would be called St. Edward's crown, we need an orb, we need some scepters. And it included on the list things which nobody knew what the job was that they did, something called St. Edward's staff. No one had any idea what the point of St. Edward's staff was. <laughs> no one could remember what it was for. But we've got to have one of those because Charles I had one of those. And we are doing exactly the same because what happened in between is, you know, being so comprehensively kind of crushed out of the narrative that, um, you know, that, 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 that nothing short of complete replication will do. Anyway, it was an amazing, amazing occasion. It's described in the most tremendous detail by Samuel Pepys, who was there, of course. And as he... As he went to sleep, and I, th- I think from memory in a pile of his own vomit, because he'd had you know, <laughs> such a big day, he said he felt he would never need to open his eyes again because he would never see its like in his lifetime. So, you know, it gives you a sense of, of, of what an occasion it was. Oh, my goodness. I mean, something to see, right? I mean, it's so vivid when you read it in peeps. I like the description of the Duke of Buckingham, who I think was wearing a thousands and thousands of pounds worth of suit (laughs) (laughs) there was a lot of suit there was a lot of velvet a lot of gold yeah no absolutely and I mean I think you can you know it wasn't as if the 1650s is the period of the interregnum sometimes it's painted as being you know desperately bleak and you know nothing interesting had happened at all so it was the first time anyone had ever seen a diamond or whatever Um, I think that's not right, but it was definitely the case that this kind of absolutely, totally kind of 24 carat um, sort of blingy occasion was not the sort of thing that had happened since since Charles I's reign. So for a lot of people, it's the first time they'd ever seen anything like it. And of course, it was brilliant, brilliant uh, business because every single one of those people who was wearing something had to buy it from a tailor and they had to get the stuff from a haberdasher and they had to get the stuff from a jeweler and so on so so as a massive economic shot in the arm the kind of 
you know, the spending power that went into that occasion was enough to make every tradesman in London happy, regardless of whether or not they'd, you know, been a Cromwellian or a, or a, or a royalist. As long as they paid their bills afterwards. Well, quite, which not all of them did, but, you know, <laughs> it was ever thus. Just obviously the moving away from that period of his life a little bit, you know, we'll come on to a little bit more about his reign in a, in a little while. But there's one thing that Charles isn't particularly, maybe, maybe, maybe not particularly well known for about, is being a particularly religious monarch. Um, but he does restore a really ancient, highly symbolic ceremony, which was the touching of the king's evil, from the king's evil, sorry. Um, What was it? Why did he bring it back? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yes. So this is this is the reason I started working on this subject a long time ago was when I first learned about this ceremony called Touching for the King's Evil. And the King's Evil is a, was a, a disease with um, the disease called scrofula, um, which is something you don't see very often, but which essentially involved people had it a lot and it was kind of it affected your glands and people got these very sort of swollen um, glands. And it was it was long believed from right back into the Middle Ages, that the, the, the healing power, the power of the king's touch on your, sort of under your chin, um, if you were suffering from this, would cure you. And it was helped by the fact that scrofula, as I understand it, is a kind of one of those conditions that waxes and wanes. So if you were touched by the king, there's a very good chance at some point in the following year, you'd get quite a lot better. Um, so, you know, there was good evidence if you were a 17th century person that it really worked. Um, kings of France were also thought to have this power, not kings of Spain, interestingly, which is another story. But <laughs> anyway, so um, so for for you know, so there had there had for a long time. I mean, Elizabeth I did it, Charles I did it. Um, had been a ceremonial occasion where people who, I mean, when I say ceremonial, I don't mean as in it wasn't real. I just mean it had a big ceremony around mm. it, where people who were sufferers from this condition would come to Whitehall. Um, would queue up and they would shuffle forward and the king would stroke them under the chin and they'd shuffle off and um, uh, and all being well, they'd get better. And um, it's very interesting because Charles I did do this, but he obviously didn't do it, well, he, not obviously, but he didn't do it that much. I think for him, a lot of, you know, physical contact with rather ill 
members of his um you know subjects of his of of very variable social status wasn't necessarily his idea of fun um charles ii um did it in exile and for me it's really interesting because it is clearly of all the ceremonies the one that seems to say most that this person is god's chosen person this person has the power to heal um and when he came back in 1660 um charles ii uh, resumed healing so in a sense i mean it it would have been more of a thing not to do it, given that it was, you know, given the spirit that we've just been talking about of like reinstating everything that had been disposed of. But he did it in amazing numbers. And there is there was a kind of fascinating whole kind of procedure around it. I mean, you couldn't just turn up. Uh, you had to have somebody in your parish who said that you definitely, a senior person in your parish said you definitely did have scrofula. They would give you a chit, which confirmed it. You would go to London. You would present it at the office of one of the king's uh, medical practitioners in Covent Garden, they would confirm that, you know, yes, that was you and that you hadn't been touched before. And then you were given an appointment to go to one of these healing ceremonies. I mean, <laughs> the admin, know, the admin, I love the admin. I find it so <laughs> fascinating that there was all the admin. Um, and, uh, and so um, that was uh, part of the kind of process that went into it. And Charles, Charles II, in the course of his reign, touched, touched as it was called, something like 6,000 people. And people later on, or even at the time, kind of enjoyed making a joke because it was about touching and because Charles II was obviously sort of famously lascivious and had lots of mistresses and so on. There was a kind of a joke to be made there. But actually, it was a kind of deadly serious thing because in an age where, you know, understanding of medical science was, you know, a million miles from where we are now, as far as you knew, you had a child who was ill, the king could cure your child. I mean, that was a serious, important thing. Um, and But it was also clearly... Uh, you know, as I say, clearly expressed a, a, a sense of the, the divine status of the king. Um, and it was to me one of the things that I, it's one of the reasons that I love this period is because it's so on the on the kind of pivot of the old world and the new. Because on the one hand, you've got Charles II there touching for the king's evil in huge numbers in this very grand ceremony in the banqueting house in Whitehall. On the other hand, he's the patron of the Royal Society. He has his own chemical laboratory at Whitehall Palace where he is participating in scientific research on absolutely, you know, the basis of kind of modern understanding. So, so kind of, you know, the new science and the old, old um, kind of understanding of, of, of the way of the world were, were, were intermingled. And he's a very good, um, he's a very good kind of figure, I think, in the, on, the, on the tipping point between those two. It all adds to his enigma, doesn't it? You know, was he was he doing it because he genuinely believed that he could heal or was he doing it because it was good PR and it, you know, it, it puts him in front of people and it shows that he has that divine right of kings? What what do you make of him? Because he's, he's so unknowable. What, what What do you make of it? Yeah, he is. He's one. He's a really good example of one of those people who, in a way, the fact you know sometimes you think that the quiet people are the hardest to know, but actually, I think often the noisy people are the hardest to know because they're very good at projecting a kind of you know letting you see a whole lot of things that aren't necessarily the kind of inner core of who they are. Um, I mean, I suspect that uh, I suspect that for Charles II. Um, it, it's not an either or situation like for a lot of people of his age. I don't think it was a choice between, you know, am I, uh, you know, have I got the healing touch? Um, and um, God's, you know, God's nominated person sort of sending out thunderbolts of, you know, 
um, of, of, of divinity through my fingertips? Or, you know, is this all nonsense and I'm just doing it because people like it? Uh, you know, I suspect that I suspect that there was a bit of intermingling of those two. And I suspect that's always been the case. I remember reading a very interesting um, account of when Edward VIII was, um, as Prince of Wales, was being inaugurated as Prince of Wales, uh, in fact, at Carnarvon Castle. And him writing, I think in his diary or letter, saying, it's so embarrassing, it's ridiculous. I have put on this sort of medieval costume and all the boys, you know, who I know from the Navy are going to be, you know, taking the piss out of me. (laughs) And you can see that, you know, so I, but at the same time, you know, presumably, you know, as somebody um, who was going to be king and so on, you know, they took these things very seriously as well. So, so my suspicion is that Charles II was, like the age itself, a kind of intermingling of believing in it to, to some extent, but also having a kind of both as a both as a sort of someone interested in science and as a bit of a kind of skeptic of, in life altogether, mm-hmm. having a bit of a wry smile about it at the same time. And I, I, I would I, my feeling for him is that he's, you know, those two things coexist within him. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Wonderful. Now, when he marries in 1662, with all of the splendor of the restoration and the coronation, I think we'd assume that the royal wedding must have been epic. But that wasn't the case, was it? Will you tell us a bit about Charles's wedding and how his queen then fit into his ceremonial duties? Yes, it's a funny thing about this because, as you say, in the modern age, we're used to royal weddings. I mean, it doesn't get bigger than a royal, royal wedding, wedding, does it? You love know, we all have a royal wedding. And, you know, I remember <laughs> Charles and Di, we all got the day of school, and, you know, it was, it was amazing. <laughs> um, but uh, actually, in the 17th century, royal weddings weren't ceremonial occasions, uh, it, or at least they weren't what they would call state occasions. They were, they were very private, um, uh, they often weren't um, conducted within a church. Um, I mean, weddings, um, marriage wasn't a sacrament in the um, in the Church of England, so it wasn't. It didn't have to be conducted in a um, in a church. And often, um, weddings between um, members of the royal family would take place in the royal apartments. Um, and so, uh, so there wasn't a. They were treated as private events. You know, it was a personal, much more kind of personal thing. Yes, there would be a proclamation um, declaring that you know the king was going to marry the daughter of the king of Portugal or whatever but as far as it as an event that people would would kind of turn out for in their droves it you know it, it really wasn't that quite often particularly with with them um, weddings to foreign um princesses or princes there was a there was a um a, a, a wedding that happened performed by proxies before the person mm-hmm. left the their country of origin um so um so for, for so for Catherine Braganza when she came over in 1662, she arrived at Portsmouth, and the wedding is a, a private affair conducted there. Um, and um, so it's not not one of those moments that you have a big um, spotlight on. And it was exactly the same when William and Mary got married, um, which was in Charles II during Charles II's reign, and that similarly happened very quietly. 
poor old bride in floods of tears at this oh. this disappointing Dutchman she thought she was being <laughs> paired off with. But she wasn't very in, old, was she either? She wasn't very old and she was very romantic and very tall and he was very small and unromantic <laughs> and had very black teeth. Actually, it was a very successful marriage, but, you know, as was often the case with royal marriages, generally, you know, often the, the day of the marriage was one of the first days you'd ever clapped eyes on each other. So, you know, it's understanding that understandable that, that they were, weren't always a big success. Um, so, yes, and poor old Catherine Braganza had, a, you know, she had a, 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 a short straw from the first because, of course, Charles II was, um, you know, a great ladies' man and was very much in love with his then mistress, um, uh, Barbara Villas. Um, and, um, uh, uh, and he made it very, very difficult for poor old Catherine Braganza in, in insisting that all these women remained at court around her. And then she, um, when they failed to conceive, she and Charles II, her status diminished even further because, of course, you know, she couldn't, um, she didn't get the kind of additional um, kind of um, respect and so on due to the mother of a, of a, um, of an heir. And because Charles II's mistresses all had so many babies, um, it was pretty, pretty clear that the the kind of, you know, the biological shortcomings were not on his side. Mm. Um, so even though she was, you know, she was a great cat, she, you know, she was the daughter of a sovereign prince and you know, came with an amazing dowry, including Bombay and various other things like that. Um, she, she, she always struggled and she was a fish out of water at the English court. You know, she came from a very, very formal, highly uh, Catholic, highly conservative court to one which was full of people just having the time of their lives after 15, 14 years of exile and uh, and a husband who you know wasn't wasn't really interested in fidelity so yeah you've got to feel sorry for her and she turned up wearing all the all the wrong clothes and in this she really had all the wrong gear on court. yeah she had this sort of very formal in in spain and portugal they went for very different kind of forms of dress very very formal uh, what was considered desperately old-fashioned and uptight kind of clothing by by the 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 people the you know the english um courtiers who had all been sort of as we've been talking about you know living a sort of fast and loose life in the back streets of Rotterdam and places for the last 20 years so (laughs) if they'd ever been inclined to be very very um buttoned up and formal they'd certainly had it rubbed off by that experience and she turned up very young um and um you know straight from a convent um so it was it was yeah it was it was not an easy gig for her um and yeah, and then there's the great sadness for her of you know of of not having children uh, added to it. Gosh, I do feel really sorry for her. Um, so moving forward into the the rest of his reign, obviously he's king for another twenty five years or so. But most people in the public sphere, I imagine, would only know those early years where he comes back to power and maybe like the plague and the fire and so on. They know these key events, but not necessarily what else he was doing in those 25 years. Um, so what? how did he use the power of, of ceremony in the rest of his reign? So he, I mean, first of all, he, he, he had a kind of patience for the, for the monarchy on show, which others didn't. His father didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, his father liked to be, you know, in living kind of a nice time, nice life with his paintings and his church <laughs> ceremonies and so on, sort of behind closed doors. Charles II never got tired of doing the big set pieces, you know, kind of being on show, being a, being the centre of attention. 
I think um, I think having spent the time he did with nobody paying much attention to him gave him an appetite for it. And I think he was a showman too. So I think it kind of suited him. Mm-hmm. So he made great, I mean, as we would kind of analyze it now, I don't know whether he'd have seen it in these terms, but he made great use of all of these um, ceremonial occasions, you know, entries into the city of London and um, the, going to his, the, the festivals of the church and the, 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 the year and so on for showing himself to his people, being a kind of great figurehead and a sort of burst of sunlight in a way which helped to, I think, continually reinforce the sort of sense that monarchy was, was, was you know, a positive, glorious force in, in the world. Um, and I think that uh, I think that definitely that definitely helped to entrench what was, after all, itself a kind of new regime that might might have gone the same way of Cromwell's protectorate. You know that that it, it could have all fallen to pieces. So I think you know, and of course we're talking about an age where you obviously you know you don't have any television, you don't have any social media, <laughs> you don't have any other. You know, you've got you can a few prints and ballads are probably the main you know, opportunities you have for kind of projecting yourself into the lives of your subjects. But getting physically out there is obviously a big way of doing it. And these great ceremonial occasions allowed him to do that and allowed him to do that in a setting where it was really, really clear that, you know, he's the, the person with the sort of, you know, the, the, the sort of glorious beams of sunlight coming out of him. So I think they were very, it was very important for that. And it became really important because, you know, those first years, as you say, are well known, partly because of the big events that happened a lot because Samuel Pepys wrote these wonderful diaries, which mm. tell us everything, the whole texture of what life in England was like in the 1660s. Um, I always think if Samuel Pepys had lived in the 1560s, you know, what a different sense we'd have of Elizabethan England and compared to, you know, Restoration England. But anyway, um, but actually, the, the, you know, a real crisis comes to the fore when it becomes, when it, you know, his, Catherine Braganza hasn't had a child, so although he's got loads of illegitimate children, he's got no heir no because obviously a a child has to be legitimate to inherit the throne and his brother his fighting fit converts to catholicism and it's just (laughs) suicide you know it's suicide because catholicism is so unpopular in england you know the the whole civil war in itself was bound up in anti-catholicism and so charles ii has got a real fight on his hands to prevent his regime which he has you know been at the forefront of the reinstatement of the monarchy itself from being from being completely kind of undermined and um, toppled even by this crisis of the heir to the throne being a Catholic. And people, you know, really said 1641 is come again. You know, the civil war is just, you know, at any moment now, you know, they'll be raising the royal standard in Nottingham and we'll be back at, you know, back at war again. So in those, so it, it, the James Duke of York, James II, as he would become, his conversion to Catholicism becomes clear in uh, the early 1670s. And from then on, Charles II's really got to fight on his hand to project a powerful and you know, compelling enough image of monarchy that even though when he dies, a Catholic is going to come to the throne, be head of the Church of England, which is a Protestant church, that, that's kind of all right, because the, you know, the, the so strong is the regime that he has fronted up so this brings all of this kind of ceremonial stuff really to the fore and you see you see it ramping up you see his um use of these occasions and the the decoration of the rooms they happen in and the 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 kind of numbers who are invited to participate going up and up and up in the end of the reign uh, from the conversion of james duke of york to try i i believe to to really really 
um, dig in that his regime and the monarchy itself against um, events that could potentially follow. It's it's so frustrating to to read it all now when we've got all the hindsight and all of the all of the the future information that we have. But that equating of a Catholic monarch with an absolute monarch just seems to be this completely irrational fear that is so entrenched in everybody that the idea that when James comes to the throne as a Catholic, everything's going to be undone and he's going to be this tyrant where Charles has been so easygoing and he wants everyone to be able to worship how they want to worship. And it's all cool so long as you worship me. It's it's just, it's so frustrating to see that just crumble despite his best efforts. Well, it is, although I think James II, you know, I mean, of course, you know, you know there's a sort of tremendous, um, uh, you know, um, sort of bigotry in that view about Catholics. Catholics would know no worse than the next person. But, <laughs> but it is true that it so happened, not because he was a Catholic, but that James II was rather authoritarian, you know, did have a view, a, a pretty pronounced view. He expressed it to William III on one occasion that parliaments were pointless. And, you know, when he became king, he was going to do away with them. And, you know, he was a military man. He had a very clear sense that, you know, I'm in charge and everyone should do what I say. And he didn't have a kind, he didn't have a sort of, a political sensitivity to the kind of the funny balance that was the the sort of English constitution, rather like his father, rather like Charles I was rather the same. James I and Charles II really got it. You know, they got, mm. so yes, of course, I'm the king, I'm in charge, I need to be glorious and fabulous, but I've also got to get, I've got to do a bit of compromising and I've got to acknowledge that these MPs, you know, they need to be listened to because otherwise they're going to give me a headache and and so on. So, so I mean, of course, you know, you, you, you know, you're right, but at the same time, I think that, quite a few of the fears about James II were well-founded. They were wrongly attributed to his Catholicism, <laughs> which wasn't the cause of it. But, um, but when he came to the throne and was, you know, gave all sorts of undertakings that he wasn't going to promote Catholicism and he was going to respect the rule of law and so on, you know, it did become clear pretty quickly that those, you know, those couldn't be relied upon. Um, so I... I, I, I think that um, I think the frustration for me when I read about it is how frustrated Charles II must have felt with his brother, you know. Um, I mean, of course, you know, it was presumably a perfectly sincere religious conversion. So, you know, trying to talk somebody out of that, no doubt, was pretty hard. But seeing when, his, when they were in exile and their younger brother, now dead, but their younger brother then, had been sent to a Jesuit seminary, Charles II wrote a letter to him saying, you've got to understand that if any of us become Catholics, we immediately jeopardise everything. Because, you know, like it or you know, not, it, people have such a strong view about Catholics in England that no Catholic could ever successfully pull off being a sovereign, you know, in, in our time. So then to see his brother convert to Catholicism, he must have been tearing his hair out. Um, but, you know, and, and as history then demonstrates, you know, it was very short-lived. He, James II's reign was, you know, three years long. And he was, you know, he was, uh, uh, you know, um, he was to abdicate or be ousted, really, um, you know, within within not much more than a heartbeat from his accession. So, <laughs> yeah, there was the people were right to be, you know, to feel a sense of sense of sort of foreboding about his accession. Yeah, James was to go on his travels again. It must have just been a case of why couldn't you do it secretly, James? I know. Couldn't you just kind of just keep the door closed? You know. 
It's fine. Uh, you can be yeah. as Catholic as you want. Just <laughs> shh, just yeah. don't tell anybody. Which exactly. brings us on neatly <laughs> to um, we need to talk about the end of Charles's life, which is something described in your book that I'm openly still not over because your description <laughs> of it is so harrowing. Um, and it's a perfect time with, with the clock chiming. That, that's just the perfect sound for this. Um, what ceremonies were in place for the critical illness and the death of a king? Yeah, so Charles II um, became ill in, in 1685 and um, he was only in his 50s um, and had about a week um, uh, between him uh, clearly being struck down by something. So it was a quick, you know, it was a quick decline. Um, and the, 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 the way in which that um, uh, kind of played out in terms of the you know, sort of ceremonial context is not so much that there were ceremonials in terms of sort of set piece things, but more that he was within the, um, the inner apartments of uh, the Royal Palace. And he was uh, there, he was attended by a series of different kind of groups of people who were part of the different departments of the royal household so he had his, his bedchamber servants who were the ones who looked after him in his royal apartments I and mean, whenever Charles II went to bed in his room on the floor on a series of roll-up beds which was true of all sovereigns this time where his close attendants you know um, making sure he was you know safe and secure and so on so you know, he didn't live a kind of private life at all and that environment then when he was ill became full of the other groups of people attending him, two crucial ones being the Royal Medical Establishment, who came and went with more and more terrifying sounding um, 17th century remedies, you know, clisters and cups for, 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 um, for blistering, you know, hot cups for putting on your body and injections and um, uh, uh, extractions of blood on kind of totally, you know, horrible scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also the religious establishment, because of course the you know the the tending to as would be the case if somebody wasn't a king, but you know offering the the kind of last rites and the the you know the sort of communion before death and so on was very important. And this is where what and then of course you had all his family and his you know his many children by you know, twelve children um, by different marriages. Uh, there, there was the queen, but there was also his um, various well his particular sort of matress on teach who's. Um, Louise de Carroll, who he was very, very close to, all kind of trying to get in, and his brother trying to get in. So it was must have been absolutely heaving in there. Um, it was summer, so it was really hot, um, and um, it's a sort of pathetic, you know, scene that I find very moving. That you know, the sadness and the pain of somebody dealing with death. And I think because because the records are so good for royal people, members of the royal family, you get a kind of vi- you get a sort of vision or a glimpse of somebody dying in a way that you don't usually for other people and of course it's different because it's you know much grander and look many more attendants and so on but it's still a human being dying and that's something to witness you know at any point in time and of any status um and then there was this remarkable business right at the end of james duke of york um arranging for a catholic priest to come in and to um to to give him mass and to to accept him into the Catholic Church, which has always been really con- controversial because, mm. you know, there is, he hadn't shown any sign of being a Catholic before. Um, and uh, he hadn't shown any sign of being very strongly religious in any kind of way, other than <laughs> the importance of kind of turning up. And, you know, he'd made, he'd always joked about sleeping through sermons and so on. 
Um, and the question is really, you know, did it definitely happen? Because obviously James was a Catholic, and so it was in his interests. Well, first of all, he'd want his brother to be received into the Catholic Church because he would be thinking this is the only thing that's going to stop you from being sent straight to hell. Um, also, it was in his interest politically as a Catholic to, you know, to, to, to gain a kind of convert. Uh, and of course, Charles II's mistress, his brother, his mother, you know, had all been Catholic. So, you know, there are a lot of them around. Um, or whether it was the case of he'd always been a Catholic and this was it finally coming out, that he had kept it under wraps as possible. Mm-hmm. Or, which is sort of my favoured view, that here was a man who was dying and those around him wanted him to do this thing. And, you know, and he agreed. Um, not to say that he was objecting to it, but that what you might do or say in those final hours in great pain, knowing that death was upon you, you don't necessarily have, that doesn't necessarily have to be a logical extension of something in the rest of your life. It could be very much born of the moment. Uh, But then he died and then immediately the proclamation of James II happened. And uh, and then, you know, you go back to repeat the the ceremonies of accession, um, uh, which include the coronation of James II, which happened quite quickly afterwards um, for good reasons, which there were plenty of people who were very uncertain as to whether this was, you know, this was the right course. And Charles II's um, oldest illegitimate son, the Duke of Monmouth, um, was in the Low Countries looking like rather a sort. So um, James II was very keen to get get a quick smart. Thank you so much, and for joining us and, and telling us all about the ceremonial life of Charles II. Obviously, it's all based on your book. Do you want to tell us a bit more? Yes. So the book is called The Magnificent Monarch, Charles II and the Ceremonies of Power. And it's it's really it's a life of Charles II, but told through the lens of all these great occasions rather than through battles or parliament or anything like that. Um, and yeah, and uh, I hope people enjoy it. And I, there are two other sort of related books. One is my biography, The Duke of Monmouth, which is also tells part of the story. And then my most recent book called The Restless Republic, which is about England as a republic in the 1650s. So you can read the trilogy if you're really keen. Oh, we are. We are more than keen, (laughs) Anna. You have to come back and talk to us about Britain without a crown. I think I'd love to do that. Love to hear about that. It's a it's a time that people really don't pay much attention to and they should pay more attention to. Here, here. No, I'd I'd be delighted to. Well, thank you very much, Anna. Um, Just for all of the listeners, Anna's book will also be on the bookshop as well. So if you do fancy purchasing a copy, you can buy it through the History Hack bookshop. But again, Anna, thank you so much for joining us on History Hack. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.